Chapter 18 of Master of Life and Death by Robert Silverberg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Walton left the assembly meeting about 12.15, pleading urgent Popeek business. The voting began at 1300, and half an hour later the result was officially released. The 1400 citizen was the first to carry the report. Walton elected Popeek head. The General Assembly of the United Nations gave Roy Walton a healthy vote of confidence today. By a 95-0 vote, three abstaining, he was picked to succeed the late D.F. Fitzmaugham as Popeek Czar. He has held the post on a temporary basis for the past eight days. Walton rang up Percy. Who wrote that citizen piece on me? he asked. I did, Chief. Why? Nicely done, but not enough sock. Get all those three-syllable words out of it before the next edition. Get back to the old citizen style of jazzy writing. We thought we'd brush it up a little now that you're in, Percy said. No, that's dangerous. Keep to the old style, but revamp the content. We're rolling along now. What's new from the pollsters? Fifty percent swing to Popeek. You're the most popular man in the country as of noon. Churches are offering up prayers for you. There's a move afoot to make you President of the United States in place of old Lanson. Let Lanson keep his job, Walton chuckled. I'm not looking for any figurehead jobs. I'm too young. When's the next citizen due? At fifteen hundred. We're keeping up hourly additions until the crisis is over. Walton thought for a moment. I think fifteen hundred's too early. The Dernan arrives in Nairobi at fifteen thirty our time. I want a big splash in the sixteen hundred edition, but not a word before then. I'm with you, Percy said, and signed off. A moment later the annunciator said, There's a closed-circuit call for you from Batavia, sir. From where? Batavia, Java. Let's have it, Walton said. A fleshy face filled the screen, the face of a man who had lived a soft life in a moist climate. A rumbling voice said, You are Walton. I am Walton. I am Gaetano de Cassio. Pleased of making the acquaintance, Senor Director Walton. I own rubber plantation in the area here. Walton's mind immediately clocked off the top name on the list of landed proprietors Lassen had prepared for him. Decasio, Guy Tano, 57. Holdings estimated at better than a billion and a quarter. Born Genoa, 2175. Settled in Amsterdam, 2199. Purchased large Java holding in 2211. What can I do for you, Mr. Decasio? The rubber magnet looked ill. His fleshy face was beaded with globulates of sweat. Your brother, he grunted heavily. Your brother worked for me. I sent him to see you yesterday. He has not come back. Indeed, Walton shrugged. There's a famous phrase I could use at this point. I won't. Make no flippancies, Decasio said heavily. Where is he? Walton said, In jail. Attempted coercion of a public official. He realized Decasio was twice as nervous and tense as he was. 
You have jailed him, Di Cassio repeated flatly. Ah, I see. Jail. The audio pickup brought in the sound of stentorous breathing. Will you not free him? Di Cassio asked. I will not. Did he not tell you what would happen if he would not be granted his request? He told me, Walton said. Well? The fat man looked sick. Walton saw that the bluff was going to be unsuccessful, that the conspirators would not dare to put Lamar's drug into open production. It had been a weapon without weight, and Walton had not let himself be cowed by it. Well? Walton repeated inflexibly. You trouble me sorely, said Cassio. You give my heart pain, Mr. Walton. Steps will have to be taken. The Lamar immortality serum? The face on the screen turned leaden gray. The serum, Cassio said, is not entered into this talking. Oh, no? My brother Fred made a few remarks. Serum no estes. Walton smiled calmly. A non-existent serum, he said, has, unfortunately, non-existent leverage against me. You don't scare me, Cassio. I've outbluffed you. Go take a walk around your plantation, while you still have it, that is. Steps will be taken, Cassio said, but his malevolence was hollow. Walton laughed and broke contact. He drew Lassen's list from his desk and inscribed a brief memo to Olaf Eglin on it. These were the hundred biggest estates in the world. Within a week, there would be equalized Japanese living on all of them. He called Martinez of security. I've ordered my brother Fred remanded to your care, he said. I know. The security man sounded peeved. We can't hold a man indefinitely. Not even on your say-so, Director Walton. The charge is conspiracy, Walton said. Conspiracy against the successful operation of Popeek. I'll have a list of the ringleaders on your desk in half an hour. I want them rounded up, given a thorough psyching, and jailed. There are times, Martinez said slowly, when I suspect you exceed your powers, Director Walton. But send me the list, and I'll have the arrests made. The afternoon crawled. Walton proceeded with routine work on a half a dozen fronts, held screened conferences with each of his section chiefs, read reports augmenting what he already knew of the Venus disaster, and gobbled a few benzolurethine tranquilizers. He called Keeler and learned that no sign of Lamar had come to light yet. From Percy, he discovered that Citizen had added 200,000 subscribers overnight. The 1500 edition had a lengthy editorial praising Walton, and some letters that Percy swore were genuine, doing the same. At 1550, Olaf Eglin called to announce that the biggest estates were in the process of being dismembered. You'll be able to hear the howls from here to Batavia when we get going, Eglin warned. We have to be tough, Walton told him firmly. At 1517, he devoted a few minutes to a scientific paper that proposed terraforming Pluto by establishing synthetic hydrogen fusion suns on the icy planet. Walton skimmed through the specifications, which involved passing a current of several million amperes through a tube containing a mixture of tritium and deuterium. 
the general idea he gathered was to create electromagnetic forces of near solar intensity a pulse reaction engine would supply a hundred megawatts of power continuously at 10 million degrees centigrade has possibilities walton noted and forwarded the plan to eglin it sounded plausible enough but walton was personally skeptical of undertaking any more terraforming experiments after the venus fiasco there were after all limits to the public relations miracles lee percy could create at fifteen thirty five the annunciator chimed again call from nairobi africa mr walton okay mcleod appeared on the screen we're here he said arrived safely half a microsecond ago and all's well how about the alien we have him in a specially constructed cabin breathes hydrogen and ammonia you know he's very anxious to see you when can you come walton thought for a moment i guess there's no way of transporting him here is there i wouldn't advise it the Durnans are very sensitive about traveling in such a low gravitational field. Makes their stomachs queasy, you know. Do you think you could come out here? What's the earliest? Oh, half an hour, McLeod suggested. On my way, Walton said. The sprawling metropolis of Nairobi, capital of the Republic of Kenya, lay at the foot of the Kikuyu Hills and magnificent Mount Kilimanjaro towered above it. Four million people inhabited Nairobi, finest of the many fine cities along Africa's west coast. Africa's Negro republics had built soundly and well after achieving their liberation from colonial status. The city was calm as Walton's special jet decelerated for a landing at the vast Nairobi airport. He had left at 1547 New York time. The transatlantic trip had taken two hours and some minutes, and there was an eight-hour time zone differential between Kenya and New York. It was now 0313 in Nairobi, and the early morning rain was falling right on schedule as the jet taxied to a halt. McLeod was there to meet him. The ship's in the hills five miles out of town. There's a copter waiting for you here. Moments after leaving the jetliner, Walton was shepherded aboard a copter. Rotors whirred, and the copter rose perpendicular until it hung just above the cloud cedars at 13,000 feet. Then it fired its jets and streaked toward the hills. It was not raining when they landed. According to McLeod, the night rain was scheduled for 0200 in this sector, and the cedars had already been there and moved on to bring rain into the city proper a ground car was waiting for them at the airstrip in the hills mcleod drove handling the turboelectric job with skill there's the ship he said proudly pointing walton felt a sudden throat lump the ship stood on its tail in the midst of a wide swath of jet blackened concrete it was at least five hundred feet high a towering pale needle shimmering brightly in the moonlight wide-swept tail jets supported it like arching buttresses men moved busily around in the floodlighted area at its base mcleod drove up to the ship and around it the flawless symmetry of the foreside 
was not duplicated behind there a spidery catwalk ran some eighty feet up the side of the ship to a gaping lock and by its side a crude elevator shaft rose to the same hatch McLeod drew efficient salutes from the men as he left the car walton only puzzled glares we'd better take the elevator McLeod said the men are working on the catwalk silently they rose up into the ship they stepped through the open airlock into a paneled lounge then into narrow companionways McLeod paused and pressed down on a stud in the alcove along the way I'm back he announced tell Thorgren Claylin that I brought Walton find out whether he'll come out and talk to him I thought he had to breathe special atmosphere Walton said how can he come out they've got breathing masks usually they don't like to use them McLeod listened at the earpiece for a moment then nodded to Walton he said the alien will see you in the lounge Walton had barely time to fortify himself with a slug of filtered rum when a crewman appeared at the entrance to the lounge and declared ostentatiously his excellency Thor Grand Clarin of Derna the alien entered Walton had seen photographs and so he was partially prepared but only partially the photos had not given him any idea of size the alien stood eight feet high and gave an appearance of astonishing mass it must have weighed four or five hundred pounds but it stood on two thick legs barely three feet long somewhere in the middle of the columnar body four sturdy arms jutted forth strangely a necklace head topped the ponderous creature a head covered entirely with a transparent breathing mask one of the hands held a mechanical device of some sort the translating machine Walton surmised the aliens hide was bright green and leathery in texture a faint pungent odor drifted through the room as of an object long immersed in ammonia I am Thorgren Claylin a booming voice said diplomasiarch of Derna I have been sent to talk to Roy Walton are you Roy Walton I am Walton's voice sounded cold and dry to his own ears. He knew he was too tense, pressing too hard. I am very glad to meet you, Thorgren Clayron. Please sit. I do not. My body is not made that way. Walton sat. It made him uncomfortable to have to crane his neck upward at the alien, but that could not be helped. Did you have a pleasant trip? Walton asked temporizing desperately a half grunt came from Thorgren Clayron indeed it was so but I do not indulge in little talk a problem we have and it must be discussed indeed whatever a diplomatiarch might be on Derna it was not a typical diplomat Walton was relieved that it would not be necessary to spend hours in formalities before they reached the main problem a ship sent out by your people the alien said invaded our system some time ago in command was your colonel mcleod whom i have come to know well 
what was the purpose of this ship to explore the worlds of the universe and to discover a planet where we of earth could settle our planet is very overcrowded now so i have been given to know you have chosen labura or in your terms procyon nine as your colony is this so yes walton said it's a perfect world for our purposes but colonel mcleod has informed me that you object to our settling there we do so object the Durnan's voice was cold you are a young and active race we do not know what danger you may bring to us to have you as our neighbors we could swear a treaty of eternal peace walton said words mere words but don't you see that we can't even land on that planet of yours it's too big too heavy for us what possible harm could we do there are races said the durna heavily which believe in violence as a sacred act you have long-range missiles how would we trust you walton squirmed then suddenly inspiration struck him there's a planet in this system that's as suitable for your people as labura is for ours i mean jupiter we could offer you colonial rights to jupiter in exchange for the privilege of colonizing labura the alien was silent for a moment considering there was no way of telling what emotions passed across that face at length the alien said not satisfactory our people have long since reached stability of population we have no need of colonies it has been many thousands of your years since we have ventured into space walton felt chilled many thousands of years he realized he was up against a formidable life form we have learned to stabilize births and deaths the durnan went on sonorously it is a fundamental law of the universe and one that you earth folk must learn sooner or later how you choose to do it is your own business but we have no need of planets in your system and we fear allowing you to enter ours the matter is of simple statement difficult of resolution but we are open to suggestions from you walton's mind blanked suggestions what possible suggestion could he make he gasped we have something to offer he said it might be of value to a race that has achieved population stability we would give it to you in exchange for colonization rights what is this commodity the durnan asked immortality walton said the end of chapter 18 of master of life and death by robert silverberg